0: Festival of Weeks takes place about 50 days after Passover. It is also historically associated with the birthday of the church and the giving of the Holy Spirit in this really unique and new way. So I actually want to take a break from our series because I actually think remembering Pentecost is important, but actually talking about what does it mean for us to live in an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is life-changing. Now, rather, though, than jump into Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit comes down and there's fire and wind and it's very cool, we're going to actually anchor our sermon today, our discussion, in the overall arc of the Scriptures, which doesn't just start in Acts 2, but the Spirit actually shows up in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Right, so Spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. I want you to practice this. So if you don't get the like, I'm going to a loogie sort of thing in the back of your throat, you're not saying it right. So try and say it, ruach. A little more on the back of the throat, ruach. There you go. Well done, well done. All right, ruach, often translated spirit, wind, breath. In Genesis 1, it says the spirit, ruach, is hovering over the waters, The Spirit's pictured kind of like this idea of a wind that's blowing over the water. Genesis 2, God forms Adam from the dirt of the ground and then he breathes into the dirt and makes a living creature. God's Spirit, God's breath brings life. There's also this sense in the Old Testament that the Spirit empowers people, gives them gifts. We see this in the story of Joseph. Right, Joseph gets this sort of a power by the Spirit to interpret dreams. The text says that the Spirit of God was on him that enabled him to do this. But in the Old Testament generally, right, the Spirit, for the most part, empowers people for specific tasks at specific times. Right, when God raises up judges after the people of Israel, right, are just arriving in the promised land, the Spirit comes upon them to do something specific and particular. And you get this sense as you read the Old Testament that there's this longing, this hope for more of the Spirit. In Numbers 11:29, Israel's rebelling in the wilderness again. And Moses just wishes, I just wish your Spirit, God, would be on all God's people. He says this, if only the Lord's people, if all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. There's this sense that if only everyone had the spirit of God, things would be so much better. We also see this hope that the spirit would be on all God's people in the prophets. You read the prophet Ezekiel, he writes this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. You will be careful to observe my ordinances, right? There's this hope in the prophets that one day God is gonna put his spirit in his people that will enable them to be faithful, right? Not just so they have to really try hard, like get your act together and work harder, but actually the spirit's work in them will enable their faithfulness. There's also this hope that's articulated by the prophets, That there's going to be this person, this one who will come, that will be so empowered by God's Spirit that he will listen to God's voice continually, kind of like David, but only on his best days. Agreed. (laughs) The Spirit, Isaiah, often speaks of this Spirit-filled person. In Isaiah 42, he talks about God's servant, who will be empowered by the Spirit of God. Isaiah 61, he talks about this anointed one, the Messiah, right? The anointed one. What will he be anointed with? The Spirit of God. And this longing actually sets the stage for the New Testament. It shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus, in Luke 4, he says, he goes and does his first, like, ministry address. The first time he's, like, going public. What does he read? Isaiah 61, this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's saying to those gathered, hey, those people, you know, when you were waiting for that person to come who was anointed by the spirit that was shaped and guided by the spirit, hey guys, I'm here. And then before Jesus dies, right, he's meeting with his disciples and he promises them He says, hey guys, I'm going to remain with you by the Spirit. This is John 14, 6. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. And Jesus right now, where He's tapping into this hope that one day the Spirit will be with God's people. He's saying to them, hey disciples, God is going to give you the Spirit. Just like Moses hoped for in Numbers 11, just like Ezekiel talked about, right? Then Jesus dies the next day. He's resurrected by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit. You know, about 40 days later, what does he do? He ascends to the Father, and he tells the disciples, wait in Jerusalem. And it's this story in mind that we start and read from Acts 2, which is Pentecost. Pentecost. and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked them. (laughs) They were filled with new wine. I love that line. (laughs) All right, so you have all the disciples in one place, right? Jesus has promised the Spirit's going to come. And the text says there's a wind from heaven. Remember the Old Testament. How is the Spirit communicated? Often as wind. And the text tells us the wind, where does it come from? Heaven. Heaven is God's space. So Now you have a wind coming from God's space. And the scriptures say, right, that there's fire on the disciples, right? And we've been in Exodus, so we know, right, just in Exodus, Exodus 3, God appears as a bush that is on fire. And then what does he do? As he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt, what does he appear as? A cloud at night and a, or a cloud in the day and a fire at night. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai where he appears as Smoke and fire on the mountain. Right, Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to tell us very clearly, the Spirit of God is here. But that's not all. Remember, it's Pentecost, the festival of weeks. People have traveled from all over to Jerusalem, right, from literally all around the Roman world. Luke actually gives us a list, right, in verses 9 through 11 that illustrates the wide array and cultural, ethnic, and racial diversity of this group of people. There's this group of people. I was trying to figure out, like, distances. Like, how far are these people going? You know, is it, like, just down the street? So I did a little research. And so, like, Mesopotamia, for instance. So imagine, like, hopping on your bike or grabbing a backpack and taking a walk this morning, from Wellspring to the San Diego Zoo, okay? And then come back. That's their trip to Jerusalem, a little over 900 miles. These people are devoted. They want to show up at Jerusalem, and what's the Festival of Weeks about? They're going to bring their first sheath of grain and come to God and say, God, thank you, thank you for giving us this food that we can eat. So after you have lunch today, get on your bike, San Diego, back, done. <laughs> it's also true that almost all of these travelers, even though they've come from all over the place, would have known some Greek. Since the conquest of Alexander the Great, which is about 400 years ago, Greek had become kind of like English is today in the modern world. So, I mean, I've traveled a fair amount, and my experience is, with my limited English, I can get by! Very poorly, but I can get by in most places in the world. And I think it's kind of similar for the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem knowing a little bit of Greek. But instead of needing to speak Greek this morning, you know, like cobble their way through the conversations, by the power of the Spirit, they understand Jesus' followers speaking not just in Greek, but in their mother tongue in their native language. And the question is, why? It's like, Acts 2, birth of the church, the Spirit is arriving. They're speaking in languages? What is going on? Now, any first century Jew that had marinated in the Scriptures, particularly Genesis, would make two connections. The first would be to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, the people of Babel babylon right they actually try and build this tower and they think man we are awesome we're going to build a tower all the way up to god's space in heaven and god's like "Mm, not so much so what does he do right he actually undermines their building project and gives them languages different languages so they can't talk to each other and now they can't complete the tower The people of Jerusalem, though, on that morning, now can speak the same language. And what God is doing through the Spirit is undoing the division of Babel. He's bringing the people of the world back together through the Spirit. In Genesis 11, language separates. In Acts 2, through the Spirit, language now unites. What's interesting, though, is actually immediately after Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel is the calling of Abraham. And where does Abraham get called from? Ur. Er, Babel. Babylon. So he calls Abraham out of Babylon, says, come be with me, and then what does he do? He promises to make him a blessing to the nations that he just scattered through the division at Babel, in Babylon. Why does this matter? Well, God, through the Spirit, on Pentecost, is signaling that he is going to bless the nations that he divided in Genesis 11. And now through the Spirit, he's going to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham so long ago. Too often in this text, we get so focused on the tongue speaking that people are speaking another language, that we miss kind of, I think, the point. Babel is being undone. The promise of Abraham is being fulfilled. What Moses hoped for in Numbers 11, that God's spirit would fall on all his people, is happening. That the time Ezekiel envisioned, where God would put his spirit on all of his people so that they would be able to be faithful, not simply by trying harder, but because God gave his spirit, that's a foot. In fact, Peter, right after Pentecost, he gives this sermon, and in in it he explains, no, 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 guys, they're not just drunk, right? Because people are like mocking, like, oh, look at them, you know? Had way too much wine. And he quotes the prophet Joel. And God says through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Right? And this is how Peter interprets what's happening. It's the day the spirit of God is made available to all the disciples. right, So that they can live like Jesus, constantly in communion with the spirit. And if you read Acts and you study a little bit of church history, what you'll see is that there's this radical growth in the church through the first 300 years. Why? Because the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene in this radical and new and fresh way. But we have to be careful, though, at this point to think, to not assume that, like, well, the Spirit just wasn't even active. Like, the Spirit almost didn't exist before Pentecost, because that's not true, right? God has always been three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just as an aside, right, what this means to say that God is three persons, this means that the Holy Spirit is not just the feeling you get in worship, where you're like, wow, this sounds good. Or like Star Wars and the Force, like the Force be with you. Right, like the Holy Spirit is not a Force. He's the third person of the Trinity. And at Pentecost, though, his role shifts a bit. He's kind of like takes a more leading role versus a supporting role. Just like when the son takes on human flesh, it's not like he didn't exist before AD 100. He's just coming to the foreground. Likewise, the spirit at Pentecost. He was primarily in the background taking active roles at specific times, in specific contexts, upon specific people, right? Right? Similarly with Jesus, right? Jesus comes, he lives in constant communion with the Spirit, creating almost like a new prototype for a Spirit-filled faithfulness, which is then made possible to all people who opt in to following Jesus and participate in his kingdom. Right? This is the great outpouring of the Spirit that Joel imagined and that Peter thinks is happening, right, when he preaches in Acts. Now, that's sort of like the big arc. But what does the Spirit actually do? You're like, okay, the Spirit shows up on the scene, takes a leading role, but how does that actually impact our lives? How does that actually impact the church? I want to highlight just five things, and I'll try and go through them quickly so you're not just like overwhelmed. But what does the Spirit actually do? Right, the Spirit's not just the warm tinglies we get during worship. Like, what is the Spirit? What does the Spirit actually do? The first thing I want to emphasize is this. The Spirit gives life. But we see this in the Old Testament, right? The Spirit gives life to Adam. Jesus says this in John 6, right? Literally, it is the Spirit who gives life. Paul basically quotes him in 2 Corinthians 3:6, right? The Spirit gives life. Right? This is what the Spirit does: He gives life to us. Two, the Holy Spirit empowers. And again, here there's continuity with the Old Testament. Joseph. Right? He is able to interpret dreams because God empowers him, gives him the ability to interpret these dreams. And we see this in the New Testament, especially in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, in which Paul talks about how the Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if you're sitting here and you are a follower of Jesus, the Spirit has actually given you a gift that you are meant to use. We'll talk about this more. Right? He gives you this gift. He empowers you with this gift to build up the church and fulfill God's mission in the world. Third, the Holy Spirit sanctifies, but sanctifies is kind of like a, I don't know, a churchy word. Another way to say it is the transformative, the This means, right, that the transformative work of our character is done by the Spirit of God. It's a result of the Spirit's work in us, right? Not your best effort on your best day, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies, transforms us. And what does that lead to? Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right, the Spirit doesn't just empower us, the Spirit transforms us from the inside out. Fourth, the Spirit reveals. In the Old Testament, right, God reveals all the time. Read through the prophets. What does the Spirit say? The Lord said to me, right, He speaks, He reveals, this is what I'm going to do with you people. Right, and Jesus says, John 14, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Simply, the Spirit will reveal to all disciples, you and me, what we need to be faithful. And when we think of this, actually in the Jewish context of Passover and the festival of weeks, actually some interesting parallels start to arrive. Especially if you start to contrast, right, right, Pentecost, during Pentecost, they would remember often Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai. Because if you think about the dating, right, like you have Passover, and then 50 days later, right, is Pentecost. Around that time is about the same time that Moses goes up Sinai. You start to see similarities. Jesus ascends to be with the Father, and the Spirit comes, right? Moses ascends and comes down with tablets. So think about this. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He ascends, right? And then he comes back with the law, the Ten Commandments, written on stone. Jesus goes up, he ascends to the Father, comes down as the Spirit, not with stone tablets, right, but with the life-giving, empowering, revealing guide of the Spirit to guide and shape the church. Just as the law kind of marked this new beginning for God's people in the wilderness. So the Spirit's arrival kind of marks this new beginning, this new freshness, this new direction for the church. But we need to be careful here, because it's not like you just throw out the Ten Commandments and you throw out the whole Old Testament and say, now I got the Spirit, you know? Forget about all that. What becomes clear, actually, as the New Testament unfolds is that the Spirit is the one who gives and inspires the Scriptures. That's why we read the Scriptures for guidance. The Spirit gives them to us so that we can be guided. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. Right, The Spirit is still the one guiding us through the Scriptures. Fifth, the Holy Spirit unifies. There's a sense throughout the whole New Testament that the oneness of the church is bound together through the Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That's important here. This doesn't mean that there is not diversity within the church body. What it does mean is that the diversity of the church actually mirrors the diversity of the Trinity. There's diversity and unity simultaneously. All right you're like, all right, thank you for the theology lecture. Now, how does this actually relate to our everyday life? Right, so we have a little bit of an arc of the scriptures, salvation history, yes, this is what the spirit does, but if you were to say to me, so what do I do with this? Thank you for asking, by the way, sets me up, very helpful. Right, what is the part that we play? And this is where I actually think it gets pretty interesting. So when we give our lives to Jesus, God gives his spirit to us. We don't have to actually do much. We just say, Jesus, I want to worship and follow you. And God's like, yes, here's the spirit. And simultaneously, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says this, and do not get drunk on wine. Interesting, back to wine again, for that's debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Don't fill up on wine, fill up on the Spirit. And this verb, to be filled, I'm going to do a little bit of Greek, so don't freak out, I'll make it clear. So it's in the present imperative in Greek, which is probably best translated as a command of be continually filled. Now, if you drive a car, you know that if you drive the car around, unless you're driving an electric car and then the analogy shifts, but anyway, the point is you need either electricity or gas to fill it up, right? You go far enough, what happens? The tank goes down. And if you're like me, I'm like terrified of that little empty sign on my dashboard. It's like, get to the gas station. Get to the gas station, right? I'm always, I don't know, I have this like irrational fear of breaking down on the side of the road or running out of gas. Anyway, the point is, Paul is saying something like that with the Spirit. When you go about everyday life, somehow we leak. Somehow our tank gets lower. And Paul's like, hey guys, uh, you need to pay attention to that. Hey guys, don't take the Spirit for granted. Be continually filled. And yet, in my experience at least, in the Western church and particularly in evangelical settings, people pay a lot of attention to the Father and the Son and the Holy Scriptures. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit. In the Western church, we tend to pay attention to the Father and the Son and we kind of don't really pay a lot of attention to the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do this morning is offer three diagnostic questions that you can sort of take and apply in your life and say, all right, Am I being continually filled or am I just kind of doing my own thing assuming that the Spirit's always going to be continually filled in my life? Question one. Are you actually using the gifts that the Spirit has given you? Paul tells us the Spirit empowers us with gifts to be used for the common good. Are you? Are me? Am I, right? Am I embracing the gifts the Spirit has given me? Living into them. Are you? What is church for you? What is the spiritual life for you? Because one of the ways we continually fill the tank of the Spirit in our life is by actually using and not ignoring the gifts He has given us. A number of years ago, I asked a mentor of mine. I was like, hey, you know, I could use some help on, like, just knowing my gifts. And he's like, awesome. I got you, Tony. I got you. Go take this test online. I take the test. He gets my results. He hands them to me. He's like, boom. Here you go. Job done. And he walks away. (laughs) I'm sitting there holding this piece of paper, which then I just go and put in my desk and I never looked at again. Anyone else had that experience? I'm the only one. <laughs> the thing that's interesting is if you read the New Testament, like read it like ten times this week. Tell me if there is ever a command to know your gifts. There's not one. We are invited to use our gifts. I didn't need a piece of paper. I needed practice. This is the thing. When we use our gifts in everyday life, we are partnering with the Spirit. We are filling the tank. You might wonder, why do I not have much experience with the Spirit? Well, I would ask you, first question is, are you using your gifts the Spirit gave you? And what's really cool is that when you do use the gifts that the Spirit gave you, you actually experience joy. You experience life. I read an article this week. You know what the number one thing that causes anxiety in America is right now? Shout it out. Tell me if you have any ideas. Money. What? Money. Money? Okay, good. Yeah, what else? Life, yeah, life, yeah, definitely life. (laughs) Totally. You know what it is? Public speaking. You know what? I love public speaking. Give me a Bible, a topic, say, go speak in front of 100 people. I'm like, yes, so fun. The number one thing that causes anxiety in the United States is public speaking. But guess what? the Spirit gave me gifts that bring me into this space and when I use those gifts, man, I love it. You know what doesn't even make it on the top 30 list of things that cause anxiety in the United States? Administrative work. (laughs) But if you want to make me really anxious, hand me a bunch of admin things. Ask the staff at Wellspring, they will tell you. I'm not good at it. It causes me anxiety. Why? Is it because I simply have a preference? That might be true. No, God did not gift me with the ability an administrative gift. I don't experience joy. And yet, I know that many of you, you would hate standing up here. But if I said, here, is this, this way you can bring order to this chaos administratively? You're like, sign me up. I love it. When we use our gifts, we experience joy. And we, f- we actually are filling the tank of the Spirit in our lives. Two, diagnostic question number two. Are you being grown? You're like, that is a weird way to say that question. Yes, it is. You'll figure out why in a second. So in the New Testament, we know the Spirit is central to our sanctification, our transformation. And one way to actually tell the difference of whether we are being continually filled with the Spirit or just doing whatever we want is whether we're allowing the Spirit to work on our character so that we bear good fruit. What's interesting, though, is when you go into Galatians 5 and you actually look at this word fruit, what you'll see is this. Paul actually uses the singular, not the plural. He says this. He writes, fruit, not fruits, of the Spirit. And this actually matters a little bit. It means that when the Spirit transforms us, He does so holistically. A person grown by the Spirit bears all of the fruit of the Spirit over time, not just one or two. And this gets at the difference between growing and being grown. Like for me, if I'm honest, what I would say is this, I tend to equate growing with knowing. Like someone say, how are you growing? I'd say, well, I read these Bible passages. I can like recite them to you and I think, I'm growing. Look how much I'm knowing. You know, just to rhyme it a little. But like, (laughs) look how much I know. And who also hasn't met the person who just knows a ton about the Bible? a ton about church history. You're kind of intimidated being around them because the truth is, they're also rude, impatient, and critical. Who hasn't met the person who is singularly focused on their own peace and joy but seems to have almost little time or care for cultivating love or goodness towards others? See, there's a difference between growing Go to any bookstore, go to Amazon. There are a thousand and one self-help books to help you grow. Pick something you like, focus on it, do it. Awesome, you rocked it. Being grown by the Spirit is a little different. People who are being grown by the Spirit are open to the Spirit of God working on all of who they are, all of their story, every nook and cranny of their life places of pain, places of character deformation. But too often, we limit the Spirit's work to like one corner of our lives. Like, God, please help me in my impatience while driving. Which has legitimate issues, totally get it. Road rage is a real thing. But so often we say, help me on this one thing in this one place, and we say, but God, don't actually work on my character in my marriage, in my workplace, in my family. But the Spirit is not our servant. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He doesn't just do whatever we say. Right? The Spirit wants to bear holistic fruit in us, wants to bear fruit of the Spirit, all of them. And if you want to be grown by the Spirit, you need to allow God to have access to your whole story, to all of who you are. And I'm pretty certain the first thing he's going to do when you give him that access is he is going to start working on the areas that you tend to ignore and neglect. Why? Because he wants you to be holistically transformed into Jesus' image. He wants you to bear all the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This is what it means to be continually filled with the Spirit, right? Giving him access to every room and every door and every space of our life. But this is the thing. I'll tell you one. Why do I love growing? Because growing gives me control. Where do I want to grow? I want to grow in this. God, this is where I'm going. Versus being grown. All right, Spirit. Where am I going today? What are you going to do in me today? This year? This decade? And that open-handedness is vulnerable. And yet, it's that open-handed posture that leads to the deep and lasting transformation that I think we show up to experience. Growing almost always is a superficial tinkering. Being grown gets at the core of who we are. And in that space, God transforms us from the inside out. Diagnostic question number three. You're like, two was enough. All right, three. Three. Are we depending on him? right? Like Jesus, are we being led by the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to teach us how to actually practice the way of Jesus? Right? When was the last time you said, I'm not really sure why I'm doing this, but I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit's leading me to do this. And someone says, why? And you're like, I don't know, but God told me. When's the last time that you did something because the Spirit told you. But this is actually should be part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This is part of what it means to be dependent on the Spirit. Right? Jesus says so clearly in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Who is our guide? The Spirit, from the lips of Jesus. And he doesn't just lead you into one truth, but all of them, right? This is the spirit of Jesus, third person of the Trinity. Jesus is saying, follow him. That's why I'm sending. I'm ascending. He's descending. Why? To reveal how to move forward, to guide, to lead you in all truth. To be continually filled with the spirit is to be someone who's constantly going back to the spirit and saying, what do you think? As you're reading the scripture, Spirit, what are you saying to me through these scriptures? As you're talking to a friend, Spirit, is this person crazy or brilliant? Help me out here. As you're going about your day, you're doing the dishes, you're parenting, you're at work, you're in school, Spirit, what do you have to say to me? How are you leading and guiding me in real time, in relationship? All right, when you look, let's say just this week, Is that what your life looks like? Don't say, you know, 10 years ago I had this great experience. This week, the last seven days. How often were you circling back and saying, Spirit, what do you think? How do I move forward? I have to say, when I did this little audit on myself, I felt a little uncomfortable. How easy it is for me to listen to my own voice how easy it is for me to listen to my favorite podcast or read my favorite book and be like, oh, that person has a great thing to say. But how often do I go back and say, Spirit, would you reveal your heart? Guide me in all truth. Let's not outsource truth to all the news channels and all the internet spaces. I don't know, that's terrible. I feel like I just revealed myself as a non-digital native. It's like internet (laughs) spaces. Uh, (laughs) But like, how often do we outsource truth to things other than the Spirit? How often do we depend on other voices other than the speaking voice of the Spirit in the cracks and crevices and sort of paths of everyday life? I want to invite the worship team back up. I just want to create some space for us to just think about these questions. We already have the time set aside. Let's see what the Spirit has to say to us. The Spirit gave you gifts. Do you know that? Right, that no one who is an apprentice of Jesus does not have a gift. Every single person who is an apprentice of Jesus has an indispensable gift for God's mission in the world. Two, right, are you being grown by Him? are you just kind of settling for growing yourself? Are you giving him access to every part of your story and your life? Three, are are you depending on him? That he will guide and lead you? That he will give you what you need? Holy Spirit. Pray for peace upon the kids in the other room. And God, we ask that you would speak to us. That all of the distractions would just melt away. And God, we would see our gifting. Our unique and beautiful gifting. Spirit, speak, Holy Spirit, speak to us about the ways you want to grow us. Jesus, we want to be transformed into your image, not the image of other people, not the image of our culture, not the image of this world. Jesus, we want to be transformed into your image. Jesus, you are beautiful. You are holy. God, transform us. Jesus, we pray for your healing through the Spirit this morning. God, we pray for physical healings. Pray for those who come in with wounds that no doctor can cure. That you, Holy Spirit, would come into those hidden places of pain and begin your healing and transforming work. In the privacy of this moment, God, we just pray for your sacred presence. God, we want to bear fruit. We don't want to be lopsided. We want to be shaped like your son. God, we pray that we would depend on you God, reveal to us, convict us. God, lead us to a place of repentance for the ways that we listen to other voices. We listen to our peers more than the Spirit. We listen to our bosses and what they say to us rather than your voice, Jesus. We listen to the criticism and the judgment and we internalize it. And we say, Jesus, by the power of your spirit this morning, set us free. Set us free, God. We don't want to be a people that are just dominated by this culture, dominated by so many things going on, Jesus. We want to be a people that are set free to follow you faithfully, radically, Unhindered God. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come.